Chapter Three of the Green Rust by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Kirsten Weber. The Green Rust by Edgar Wallace. Chapter Three: Punsonby's Discharge an Employee. Oliver Cresswell rose with the final despairing buzz of her alarm clock and conquered the almost irresistible temptation to close her eyes just to see what it felt like. Her first impression was that she had had no sleep all night. She remembered going to bed at one and turning from side to side until three. She remembered deciding that the best thing to do was to get up, make some tea, and watch the sun rise, and that whilst she was deciding whether such a step was romantic or just silly, she must have gone to sleep. Still, four hours of slumber is practically no slumber to a healthy girl, and she swung her pajamaed legs over the side of the bed and spent quite five minutes in a fatuous admiration of her little white feet. With an effort, she dragged herself to the bathroom and let the tap run. Then she put on the kettle. Half an hour later, she was feeling well but unenthusiastic. When she became fully conscious, which was on her way to business, she realized she was worried. She had been made party to a secret without her wish, and the drunken Mr. Beale, that youthful profligate, had really forced this confidence upon her. Only, and this she recalled with a start which sent her chin jerking upward, she was in the bus at the time, and the conductor, thinking she was signaling him to stop, pulled the bell. Only Mr. Beale was surprisingly sober and masterful for one so weak of character. Ought she to tell the doctor, Dr. Van Herden, who had been so good a friend of hers? It seemed disloyal. It was disloyal, horribly disloyal to him to hide the fact that Mr. Beale had actually been in the doctor's room at night. But was it a coincidence that the same key opened her door and the doctor's? If it were so, it was an embarrassing coincidence. She must change the locks without delay. The bus set her down at the corner of Punsonby's great block, Punsonby's is one of the most successful and, at the same time, one of the most exclusive dress-houses in London, and Oliver had indeed been fortunate in securing her present position, for employment at Punsonby's was almost equal to government employment in its permanency, as it was certainly more lucrative in its pay. As she stepped onto the pavement, she glanced up at the big ornate clock. She was in good time, she said to herself, and was pushing open the big glass door through which employees passed to the various departments, when a hand touched her gently on the arm. She turned in surprise to face Mr. Beale, looking particularly smart in a well-fitting grey suit, a grey felt hat, and a large bunch of violets in his buttonhole. "'Excuse me, Miss Cresswell,' he said pleasantly. May I have one word with you? She looked at him doubtfully. I rather wish you had chosen another time and another place, Mr. Beale, she said frankly. 
He nodded. "'I realize it is rather embarrassing,' he said. "'But, unfortunately, my business cannot wait. "'I am a businessman, you know,' he smiled, "'in spite of my dissolute habits.' She looked at him closely, for she thought she detected a gentle mockery behind his words, but he was not smiling now. "'I won't keep you more than two minutes,' he went on, "'but in that two minutes I have a great deal to tell you. I won't bore you with the story of my life.' This time she saw the amusement in his eyes and smiled, against her will, because she was not feeling particularly amused. I have a business in the city of London, he said, and again I would ask you to respect my confidence. I am a wheat expert. A wheat expert, she repeated with a puzzled frown. It's a queer job, isn't it? But that's what I am. I have a vacancy in my office for a confidential secretary. It is a nice office, the pay is good, the hours are few and the work is light. I want to know whether you will accept the position. She shook her head, regarding him with new interest, from which suspicion was not altogether absent. It's awful kind of you, Mr. Beale, and adds another to the debts I owe you, she said. But I have no desire to leave Punsonby's. It is work I like, and although I am sure you are not interested in my private business, he could have told her that he was very much interested in her private business, but he refrained, I do not mind telling you that I am earning a very good salary, and I have no intention or desire to change my situation. His eyes twinkled. Ah, well, that's my misfortune, he said. There are only two things I can say. The first is that if you work for me, you will neither be distressed nor annoyed by any habits of mine which you may have observed and which may perhaps have prejudiced you against me. In the second place, I want you to promise me that if you ever leave Punsonby's, you will give me the first offer of your services. She laughed. I think you are very funny, Mr. Beale, but I feel sure that you mean what you say, and that you would confine your, uh, little eccentricities two times outside of business hours. As far as leaving Punsonby's is concerned, I promise you that I will give you the first offer of my invaluable services, if ever I leave. And now I am afraid I must run away. I am awfully obliged to you for what you did for me last night. He looked at her steadily in the eye. I have no recollection of anything that happened last night, he said, and I should be glad if your memory would suffer the same lapse. He shook hands with her, lifted his hat, and turned abruptly away, and she looked after him till the boom of the clock recalled her to the fact that the head of the firm of Punsonby was a stickler for punctuality. She went into the great cloak-room and hung up her coat and hat. As she turned to the mirror to straighten her hair, she came face to face with a tall, dark girl who had been eyeing her thoughtfully. "'Good morning,' said Oliver, and there was in her tone more of politeness than friendship, for 
Although these two girls had occupied the same office for more than a year, there was between them an incompatibility which no length of acquaintance could remove. Hilda Glaum was of Swiss extraction, and something of a mystery. She was good-looking in a sulky, saturnine way, but her known virtues stopped short at her appearance. She neither invited nor gave confidence, and in this respect suited Oliver, but, unlike Oliver, she made no friends, entered into none of the periodical movements amongst the girls, was impervious to the attractions of the river in summer and of the proms in winter, neither visited nor received. Morning, replied the girl shortly. Then, have you been upstairs? No. Why? Oh, nothing. Oliver mounted to the first floor where her little office was. She and Hilda dealt with the registered mail, extracted and checked the money that came from the post-shoppers, and sent on the orders to the various departments. Three sealed bags lay on her desk, and a youth from the postal department waited to receive a receipt for them. This she scribbled, after comparing the numbers attached to the seals with those inscribed on the boy's receipt-book. For some reason Hilda had not followed her, and she was alone, and had tumbled the contents of the first bag onto her desk, when the managing director of Punsonby's made a surprising appearance at the glass-panelled door of her office. He was a large, stout, and important-looking man, bald and bearded. He enjoyed an episcopal manner, and had a trick of pulling back his head when he asked questions, as though he desired to evade the full force of the answer. He stood in the doorway and beckoned her out, and she went without any premonition of what was in store for her. "'Ah, uh, Miss Cresswell,' he said, "'I, ah, uh, am sorry I did not see you before you had taken off your coat and hat. Uh, will you come to my office?' "'Certainly, Mr. White,' said the girl, wondering what had happened. He led the way with his majestic stride, dangling a pair of pince-nez by their cord, as a fastidious person might carry a mouse by its tail, and ushered her into his rosewood-panelled office. "'Sit down, sit down, Miss Cresswell,' he said, and, seating himself at his desk, he put the tips of his fingers together, and looked up to the ceiling for inspiration. "'I am afraid, Miss Cresswell,' he said, "'that I have, ah, uh, an unpleasant task.' "'An unpleasant task, Mr. White?' she said, with a sinking feeling inside her. He nodded. "'I have to tell you that Punsonby's no longer require your services.' She rose to her feet, looking down at him open-mouthed with wonder and consternation. "'Not require my services,' she said slowly. "'Do you mean that I am discharged?' He nodded again. "'In lieu of a month's notice, I will give you a cheque for a month's salary.' plus the unexpired portion of this week's salary. But why am I being discharged? Why? Why? 
Mr. White, who had opened his eyes for a moment to watch the effect of his lightning stroke, closed them again. It is not the practice of Punsonby's to give any reason for dispensing with the service of its employees, he said oracularly. It is sufficient that I should tell you that hitherto you have given every satisfaction, but for reasons which I am not prepared to discuss, we must dispense with your services. Her head was in a whirl. She could not grasp what had happened. For five years she had worked in the happiest circumstances in this great store, where everybody had been kind to her, and where her tasks had been congenial. She had never thought of going elsewhere. She regarded herself, as did all the better-class employees, as a fixture. "'Do I understand,' she asked, "'that I am to leave at once?' Mr. White nodded. He pushed the check across the table, and she took it up and folded it mechanically. "'And you are not going to tell me why?' Mr. White shook his head. "'Punsonby's do nothing without a good reason,' he said solemnly, feeling that whatever happened he must make a good case for Punsonby's, and that whoever was to blame for this unhappy incident— it was not an august firm which paid its fourteen percent with monotonous regularity. We lack a uh, definite knowledge to proceed any further in this matter than, in fact, than we have proceeded. Definite knowledge. The girl was all the more bewildered by this cumbersome diplomacy. Definite knowledge was promised, but has not, in fact, has not come to hand. It is all very unpleasant, very unpleasant. And he shook his head. She bowed, and, turning, walked quickly from the room, passed to the lobby where her coat was hung, put on her hat, and left Punsonby's for ever. It was when she had reached the street that, with a shock, she remembered Beale's words, and she stood stock still, pinching her lip thoughtfully. Had he known? Why had he come that morning, hours before he was ordinarily visible, if the common gossip of Crewman Mansions be worthy of credence? And then, as though to cap the amazing events of the morning, she saw him again. He was standing on the corner of the street, leaning on his cane, smoking a long cigarette through a much longer holder, and he seemed wholly absorbed in watching a linesman perched high above the street repairing a telegraph wire. She made a step toward him, but stopped. He was so evidently engrossed in the acrobatics of the honest workman in mid-air that he could not have seen her, and she turned swiftly and walked the other way. She had not reached the end of the block before he was at her side. "'You are going home early, Miss Cresswell,' he smiled. She turned to him. "'Do you know why?' she asked. "'I don't know why, unless—' "'Unless what?' "'Unless you have been discharged,' he said coolly. Her brows knit. "'What do you know about my discharge?' she asked. "'Such things are possible,' said Mr. Beale. 
"'Did you know I was going to be discharged?' she asked again. He nodded. "'I didn't exactly know you would be discharged this morning, but I had an idea you would be discharged at some time or other. That is why I came with my offer. "'Which, of course, I won't accept,' she snapped. "'Which, of course, you have accepted,' he said quietly. "'Believe me.' I know nothing more than that Punsonby's have been prevailed upon to discharge you. What reason induced them to take that step, I honestly don't know. But why did you think so? He was grave of a sudden. I just thought so, he said. I am not going to be mysterious with you, and I can only tell you that I had reasons to believe that some such step would be taken. She shrugged her shoulders wearily. "'Tis quite mysterious enough,' she said. "'Do you seriously want me to work for you?' He nodded. "'You didn't tell me your city address. That is why I came back,' he said. "'Then you knew I was coming out?' "'I knew you would come out some time in the day.' She stared at him. "'Do you mean to tell me that you would have waited all day to give me your address?' He laughed. "'I only mean this,' he replied, "'that I should have waited all day.' It was a helpless laugh which echoed his. "'My address is 342 Lothbury,' he went on. "'342. "'You may begin work this afternoon, and,' he hesitated, "'and,' she repeated, and I think it would be wise if you didn't tell your friend the doctor that I am employing you. He was examining his fingernails attentively as he spoke, and he did not meet her eyes. There are many reasons, he went on. In the first place, I have blotted my copy-book, as they say, in Crewman Mansions, and it might not be down to your credit. "'You should have thought of that before you asked me to come to you,' she said. "'I thought of it a great deal,' he replied calmly. There was much in what he said, as the girl recognized. She blamed herself for her hasty promise, but somehow the events of the previous night had placed him on a different footing, had given him a certain indefinable position to which the inebriate Mr. Beale had not aspired.' "'I am afraid I am rather bewildered by all the mystery of it,' she said, "'and I don't think I will come to the office to-day. "'Tomorrow morning. At what hour?' Ten o'clock,' he said. "'I will be there to explain your duties. "'Your salary will be five pounds a week. "'You will be in charge of the office, to which I very seldom go, by the way, and your work will be preparing statistical returns of the wheat crops in all the wheat fields of the world for the last fifty years. It sounds thrilling, she said, and a quick smile flashed across his face. It is much more thrilling than you imagine, were his parting words. She reached Crewman Mansions just as the doctor was coming out and he looked at her in surprise. You are back early. Should she tell him? There was no reason why she shouldn't. He had been a good friend of hers, and she felt sure of his sympathy. It occurred to her at the moment that Mr. Beale had been most unsympathetic, 
and had not expressed one word of regret. "'Yes, I've been discharged,' she exclaimed. "'Discharged! Impossible!' she nodded. "'To prove that it is possible, it has happened,' she said cheerfully. "'My dear girl, this is monstrous. What excuse did they give?' "'None.' This was said with a lightness of tone which did not reflect the indignation she felt at heart. "'Did they give you no reason?' "'They gave me none. They gave me my month's check, and just told me to go off.' "'And off I came, like the well-disciplined wage-earner I am.' "'But it is monstrous,' he said indignantly. "'I will go and see them. I know of one of the heads of the firm. At least he is a patient of mine.' "'You will do nothing of the kind,' she replied firmly. "'It really doesn't matter. What are you going to do?' "'By Jove,' he said suddenly. "'What a splendid idea! I want a clinical secretary!' The humour of it got the better of her, and she laughed in his face. "'What is the joke?' he asked. "'Oh, I am so sorry, Doctor, but you mustn't think I am ungrateful. But I am beginning to regard myself as one of the plums in the labour market.' "'Have you another position?' he asked quickly. "'I have just accepted one,' she said and he did not disguise his disappointment, which might even have been interpreted, were Oliver Moore conceited, into absolute chagrin. "'You are very quick,' said he, and his voice had lost some of his enthusiasm. "'What position have you taken?' "'I am going into an office in the city,' she said. "'That will be dull. If you have settled it in your mind, of course, I cannot alter your decision.' "'But I would be quite willing to give you five or six pounds a week, and the work would be very light.' She held out her hand, and there was a twinkle in her eye. "'London is simply filled with people who want to give me five pounds a week for work which is very light. Really, I am awfully grateful to you, doctor.' She felt more cheerful as she mounted the stairs than she thought would have been possible had such a position been forecast, and had she to speculate upon the attitude of mind with which she would meet such a misfortune. Punsonby's, for all the humiliation of her dismissal, seemed fairly unimportant. Some day she would discover the circumstances which had decided the high gods who presided over the ready-made clothing business in their action. She unlocked the door and passed in not without a comprehensive and an amused glance, which took in the sober front doors of her new employer and her would-be employer. "'Sarah, your luck's in,' she said as she banged the door. Sarah was the approving version of Matilda. "'If the wheezy man fires you, be sure there'll be a good angel waiting on the doorstep to offer you twenty pounds a week for phoning the office once a day.' It occurred to her that it would be wise to place on record her protest against her summary dismissal, and she went to the little bookshelf writing-table where she kept her writing material, to indite the epistle whilst she thought of it. It was one of those little fumed oak contraptions where the desk is formed by a hinged flap which serves, when not in use, to close the desk. She pulled out the two little supports, inserted the key in the lock, 
but it refused to turn, for the simple reason that it was unlocked. She had distinctly remembered that morning locking it, after putting away the bill which had arrived with the morning post. She pulled down the flap slowly, and stared, in amazement, at the little which it hid. Every pigeonhole had been ransacked, and the contents were piled up in a confused heap. The two tiny drawers in which she kept stamps and nibs were out and emptied. End of chapter 3 Recorded by Kirsten Weber